Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are cruising along here, uh, hitting the month of March, finally. I can't believe this year is already getting into the end of quarter one. A lot going on in the world, a lot going on in uh, the the disaster arena as things are still cleaning up the earthquake in Turkey and Syria um, and uh, other things happening around the world and around the U.S. But we've got a special guest here tonight that I'm really excited to bring to you all. And before we can get to that, I have to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley. So, Sam, uh, how are you doing out there in Colorado? Pretty good, except we can't determine what season we're in. <laughs> we'll have a couple days of spring, and then it seems like every Wednesday for the last three weeks, we've had snow. But it goes away by Thursday, so go figure. It's just one of those seasonal things. Dr. Joe Holly, how's the weather down there? Uh, very rainy and stormy. Lots of uh, heavy, unsettled weather, but uh, unseasonably warm and thunderstorms and tornado threats. Oh. So a normal spring. You've had a lot of that this year down there. You have indeed. It seems like every storm that comes through hits Tennessee somewhere. Yep. Be careful about those tornadoes down there. Yes, ma'am. I know people. (laughs) Well, tonight we have Patrick Hardy with us. He's an author, among many other things. Uh, He's a founder and CEO, and I hope I say this right, Patrick, Hytropy Disaster Management the largest full-service small business and family disaster management company in the U.S. Um, He's a certified emergency manager and any number of other things for for like 25 years, mostly writing disaster plans. But he also wrote a book called Design Any Disaster, and that's what we want to talk about. His, His theory is a disaster doesn't have to stay a disaster. So if we know the right things to do, it can be managed. So hi, Patrick. Hi there. Thank you all very much for uh, for having me. And before I, I get started, I'm glad you were talking about the weather because I got a text message from my brother not five minutes ago. And he is in Dallas, Texas, and he was telling me that right now they are under a uh, tornado watch. <laughs> so he said there was a warning about an hour ago, and then it stopped. Now it's back to a watch again. So um, I can understand about, about uh, how crazy things can get down there. Oh, yeah. Well, Joe's in Memphis, so it seems like Every storm that comes through seems to go through Tennessee on its way to the East Coast. But, Jamie, you haven't had all that much this year, comparatively. Oh, no, it's been pretty mild. And, um, you know, goodness, goodness gracious, 70-degree weather in the middle of February and then, you know, back into, you know, some reasonably cold stuff. But no snow to mention of at all here in the mid-Atlantic area and uh, a little bit of rain stuff. The storms seem to be really have settled down by the time they get to the East Coast this year. Sometimes they set up with a nor'easter off the coast and really pummel us, but that hasn't lined up this year. Well, your time will come. <laughs> oh, it'll it'll work its way around. <laughs> we've had oh God, we've had more snow this year than I've been here nine years, and I haven't seen this much snow. So, I guess that's the way of the world. So, Patrick, you uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that I've read um, concerning your book, um, talking about. But you're talking, you know, where we talk, most of our people are first responders, and we have an international presence of folks 
but many of them are medical professionals and disaster professionals and that kind of thing. But you, this will be a little different because you're also talking about families and businesses and that kind of thing. So a disaster can have a very different meaning than just a tornado coming through, right? Yeah, that's right. It, it can mean a lot of things, um, right? I mean, the way that I like to define it, uh, particularly when I talk to my clients, is I said, anything that you consider a disaster, anything that you consider something that interrupts your family's flow of life, that's kind of the way I define it, that's a disaster to me. So if it's a disaster to you, disaster to me. That's what I tell them. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, you have a three C's method, commanding, communicating, and carrying out. And we'll talk about those in relation to the different steps you go through here. So the first of them, and we talk about this a lot, is preparation. But you're talking, again, a little bit differently than we do because you're talking about an easy-to-use disaster plan for either a family or a business mostly. So you want to tell us about that? I mean, as far as far as the you mean as far as as planning goes. I'm sorry, I want to make sure I understood the question. Do you mean as far as as, as having a plan? Right. I mean, tell us one thing we haven't talked a lot about was disaster plans. Uh, right. You know, we talk about spur of the moment. Hey, the hurricane hits. What do the first responders do? And that kind of right. thing. You're talking about family plans and business plans. So, what is that first step? What do we do? You mentioned seizing control right after a disaster strikes. So how do they know what to do and, and so forth? I write disaster plans uh, very differently than anyone else in the world, and I, I feel very confident about it. And I, I take that as a, as a real badge of honor because one of the things that I discovered in, in reading plans, particularly when I worked um, – in, uh, you know, with uh, the, the government, and then when I worked with Fortune 500 businesses, I just, all plans seem to make the same identical error, which is they all say something along the lines of, you know, you don't need to handle this because your level person will deal with it. So I saw so often really, really good workforces with great paid people who wanted to help who simply couldn't do anything because the plans would say something along the lines of don't do anything, talk to manager X or talk to CEO X or talk to the owner before you do anything. And what that happens is that that paralyzes a workforce, right? And when you're with a bigger organization, in some instances, um, it, it can create it where uh, you have distant offices, particularly when I would work with healthcare organizations, and they would own, say, they would have a headquarters in one state, and then they would own a series of skilled nursing facilities in another, another state. Now, I'd read the disaster plan for one of the skilled facilities. They would say, you know, don't do anything until you talk to this executive vice president or this manager. And what would happen is you'd see complete paralysis. People would say, I don't know what to do because – to protect the residents, and I have to protect the people who are here, but we can't violate corporate policy. So it becomes it becomes a quagmire. With small businesses, it gets even more acute because what happens, you have a very small number of people who are required to execute a large constellation of activities. So they're the ones that have to evacuate people or shelter people. 
They're the ones that have to deal with any media implications, if appropriate. They're the ones that have to deal with the utilities and all the other elements of their particular business, every critical process of their business. I write plans for small businesses. I make them so that I literally say, anybody can pick up this plan and use anyone. And that's how I test my plans. I always take the new person at the company and I always say, I need you to take a look at this plan and tell me how you would execute the, the disaster response. And if they read the plan and say, I can't do that, then it's time for me to go back to the drawing board and I rewrite the plan until I get to the point where even the newest employee knows exactly the policies and procedures that need to be followed. Well, that's interesting because I never thought about it in terms of following a policy. <laughs> I think our basic theory is, you know, when it hits the fan, you, get, you do what you have to do. You know, to take care of yourself and your family and other people, even if you're in a corporate environment, because who knows, that CEO may have been swept away in a tornado. What do you think, Joe? Oh, 100%. You know, the, there's nothing uh, nothing more common than uh, the disaster manual, uh, which is 700 pages long and can't be found and is sitting on the shelf and nobody takes it off and reads it. So it, it's a exercise in futility in most cases. Well, if it's that complicated, they're probably not going to read it anyway. What do you think, Jamie? Oh, I agree. And I think that, you know, it's it's important that uh, anybody in any level has the the not only the ability to, but the authorization to take important steps and initiative to um, initiate some changes that can be significant in saving life and property. And it sounds to me like, Patrick, that's exactly what you're authorized. You're, you're having businesses authorized. We don't talk enough about how businesses are impacted, but it's the businesses that often provide so much of a community's resilience. It is very much so. Um, in fact, um, I, I tell people, I said, the tapestry of, of, of your small businesses that operate in your jurisdictions and where you live that is as diverse as the people who live there. <laughs> and so I've written disaster plans for restaurants and bars and nursing homes and beekeeping operations and alligator farms and underwater cable operations, all kinds of businesses. And it never ceases to amaze me how people have found niches to make a good living doing, <laughs> doing whatever it is they do. And I say, I want to empower your passion. And so what the disaster program has to do is it can't stand in your way. So I think what all of you said was absolutely right, which is it needs to give people the authority so that they can perform these actions, but it also to flow into the culture of the company or the organization. Because when uh, one of the things I do that's very different than everyone else, whenever I run disaster trainings, I do this all the time. I'll have a whole group of people, and they'll all walk in because they'll say, okay, here's the guy that's going to do the disaster training. And everybody, everybody starts to wince, and everybody starts to tighten up because they're prepping for the old doom and gloom, blood and guts presentation. And I never do that. Always make it fun and interesting because I turn to people and I say, listen, I want you to walk away today with a positive association with the disaster program. I want you to feel as though you have the confidence to do so and already to act on these plans, because otherwise um, that 700 page plan is going to get um, is going to sit on the 
and it's going to gather dust. In fact, I talk about about it in the book uh, facetiously, of course, about the dust test. And I tell this to all my disaster planners. I say, you know, uh, count the amount of uh, count the amount of dust on top, and that will tell you um, how effective the disaster plan is because those things are inversely proportional. The more dust, the less prepared that the, your plan is probably to uh, to work within your organization. Not to mention it was probably written in 1942. Um, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, you know, my son used to work at the Waffle House um, as a short order cook there years ago. And one of the things that I was always impressed with from learning through him when we had some some pretty significant snow events during the time he was working there was that the managers of each store were empowered to keep that store open come hell or high water, literally. And that they were, you know, you can, yes, get your employees at a nearby motel where they can walk to work, line up things and be proactive, um, do what you can to get the store open as soon as possible once you get power back. What can you cook without power? Um, those kind of things. And and it sounds to me a lot like, you know, sounds to me like they have a plan that kind of fits within that model, Patrick. No doubt. Um, and in fact, um, in 2012, I was the national private sector representative uh, to FEMA. And um, during one of the, um, during a, a week of time when I, they had something called National Restaurant Day. So National Preparedness Day. So they brought in all the global emergency managers from all the big uh, restaurant chains, Darden Restaurants, which owns Chili's and some of these other ones. And the guy from Waffle House was there. And he was talking about this, that the delegation of authority was one of the critical factors in the success of their disaster programs. And in being able to give them that authority to and to be able to say, I leave the flexibility, but I provide you with the logistics to move people around. Uh, one of the stories he was actually telling me, I actually, I actually kind of buttonholed him in, in the hallway when he was leaving, and he was talking to me about a story about how when one of the stores said there's no way we're going to get enough employees to be able to, to get open, but if we had the employees, we'd be able to open tomorrow. So what they did was they took a private jet from an executive who offered the jet to them, and they were ferrying employees from another state to keep the Waffle House open. And I told people, that is the heart of continuity. That's the heart of it. It's not boring disaster plans. It's empowering people and saying, we're going to provide you with the necessary logistics and financing and resources need to be successful. That is how you avoid disasters. That's how you really do it. So that's a wonderful point. Brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Well, another thing that's factored into this when you're talking about, well, you got to call this corporate executive, you know, people are going to react differently. And I don't know how you factor that into a disaster plan when you have people that come and go, but you got your people that are going to jump right into it and start thinking about what needs to be done and doing it. And then you have people that stand there waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. How do you figure that in? The, well, the, one of the first things I do is that I turn to every employee at a company, whether they are the CEOs or whether they are mid-level employees or whether they are line employees. And the first thing I tell them is I say, I want every single one of you take off your, your name badges, take them all off. And they're going like, oh, we're not allowed to. I was like, I'm in control in this room. 
take their name badges off. Every single person. So everyone puts their name badges on the desk. And they say, okay, we're going to put them on a back table so you can, can, so you can grab them on the way out. I don't want to know who you are. I don't want who you are in the company. I don't want to know your title. I don't know, want to know who you supervise because I don't care. I don't care. Well, I mean, I care, but I don't care because each one of you wants you to know that it is identically in a disaster. Each one of you can take control. Now, is it realistic for, for every single person in a real disaster situation to take control? No, but every single person can take control of a certain portion. Then what I can do is I can turn to different folks and say, I need you to check the safety of this. I need you to see if we can evacuate. I need you to call 911 and make sure we have people and they know where to go and where we are. I need you to go grab the, the, the equipment. I need you to check the generator and so on and so on. And by doing that, that's what the three C, that's what the C3 method is about is turning people and saying, someone has to take command of it, but that doesn't mean you're the unilateral commander. It means you're one person empowering the leaders around you because communication, that's the second part, is about assembling a team. And that's what I talk about is once you take command, you assemble your team and you know how you have a really great team is when people are taking responsibility for different parts of the response. That's how you know you have a great team and carrying out, which is a third plank, is all about execution, supervising people and making sure people are successful, making sure if you have to get that private jet, you get the private jet. If you have to get a hotel, you get that. Those are the kinds of things that, that, that help you to design the disaster. You design it the way you want it to end up. Otherwise, what happens is if you're just making stuff up on the fly, sometimes the heroics will pay off. Sometimes the heroics won't pay off. For every one heroic story that pays off, I can give you a dozen stories of when it hasn't because people try to just make things up. So what I tell people is I say, if we can empower you beforehand, the plan comes to life. The, the, every element of the plan works for you because now you're a team. You work together. The, the commander is the quarterback. Then you have a wide receiver. You have a tight end. You have all these people. And each person has a role that the quarterback can't do everything. So that's why it's important to have every single person empowered. That's how I know you have an effective disaster team. Amen. Jamie? Patrick, how does this integrate with uh, the public sector where you have responders that are initiating their own plans and things? Um, is this something that can be communicated with them prior to disaster events where they understand better what the businesses in the community are able to do or willing to do? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, but, but you know what's the assumption I make to every single business? Every business I talk to, I say these exact same words. In a disaster, no one is coming to help you. Nobody. If you call 911, no one is coming. If you ask for support from your insurance company, they're not going to help you. These people are not going to help you. Now, why do I say that? Does that mean they're not going to help them? No, of course not. But the assumption I'm trying to break with them is this really dangerous assumption. I talk about it, the major thesis of the book. It's if I do nothing, someone else will do something for me. It'll be taken care of on my behalf, right? And that was the core problem regarding these 700 page plans, which says the vice president will handle it, the managers will handle it, the CEO will handle it, so and so. 
But what I try to do is when I break them of that habit and I say, um, I want you to treat every outside agency like ice cream. Okay. When I was a boy, I used to, I used to ask my mom every night, you know, we'd have dinner and I would turn to her and I'd say, okay, mom, time for ice cream. And she would say, there's something you need to learn about ice cream. It is not essential every night. It's nice, but not necessary. And so when I talk to people about working with first responders, one of the things I communicate with them is I say, if they elect not to communicate with you, if they elect not to cooperate with you because they're busy. Some emergency management agencies that will have three or two or one emergency manager for a large county. And sometimes they just don't have the resources. And working with small businesses and interfacing with them, that's been one of the major challenges. But what I tell them is that instead of assuming someone will come to help you, this is what I want you to assume instead. If I do nothing, no one else will help me. Okay. No one else will do anything either. If I follow that assumption, now if, now if you receive help from the outside, it's like ice cream. It's great. That's a great day. Now the disaster isn't any worse. But if you assume that they're going to help you, then you run into a serious problem down the road. I think we've said that a time or two, right, Joe? <laughs> yeah, we absolutely have. And you're right. I think uh, there is an awful lot of the stand around and wait for somebody to come help me out there. And, and that's, mm -hmm. you, you got to rely on yourself. Yep. And, and, you know, you know the people you work with. Therefore, you'll know the people. You made a comment in here. Uh, Patrick, transforming yourself from a bystander to a leader in seconds. Well, you kind of intuitively know who those leaders can be. And if you can get all, all those other people out of their frozen state and give them a specific task, just like, you know, you talked about family plans, and I used to do this for Red Cross. And, it, it, you know, if nobody knows what to do, they're going to stand there and spin in circles. If you have a family plan, and you tell the kid, okay, your job is to get the dog, your job is to get the cat, your job is to, you know, make sure this is done, then they're going to do it because they have a responsibility. If they don't, they're just going to stand there and wait for somebody to tell them, right? I make this joke in, in, in the book, actually. I say, I will take a group of kindergartners over the Army Corps of Engineers every day of the week because when you empower kids, you can't believe what will happen. They will transform. I tell a story in the book about an elementary school I was working with in the Oregon wine country. I was doing a disaster plan for a number of wineries out there. And one of, one of the wineries uh, said, hey, listen, you know, my kid's school needs a disaster plan. What do you want to do? And I said, sure. So I worked with them. And so I ended up doing something I'd never really done before. I decided to go to every classroom, and I was going to teach and train the kids. Um, on the disaster program. And so I would go in there and I talked to them. And what I did was I said, um, there is a red backpack in here and there's a disaster plan in here. And I want to make sure that we get those two items every time we leave this room in an evacuation. And the kids would say, you know, yeah. And um, so I, I, I said to them, let's pick a captain and a vice captain, and then let's pick two other alternates. So I did, did that. So in each classroom, I picked the cap, you know, just in case the kids were absent or whatever. And so I said, okay. And um, so one day, so I, you know, I finished the plan. Everything went fine. The training went fine. So a few months later, I got a phone call from the principal of that school. He calls me and says, 
I can't believe what happened. We had a big fire here at the school. And one of the classrooms you trained was a group of first graders. They, uh, they evacuated, but they had a substitute. The regular teacher wasn't there, so they had a guest teacher. And as they evacuated, they walked outside. And when the guest teacher got to the assembly area, she realized she didn't have the disaster plan and didn't have the disaster backpack. And she threw her jacket back on to run back inside and get it. And one of the kids grabbed her and said that they had already grabbed the backpack and handed her the disaster plan. And I, I tell people constantly, when you give kids that kind of authority, you'd be amazed at how they will show up. I actually say, say this too, with employees, there's that one employee that you have that never says anything, they're quiet, they're shy, they're by themselves, they don't really socialize, but in a disaster, you never know that's the person who will change and will demonstrate something to you and blossom in front of you. That's how when you empower people in an emergency, you would be astonished at the things that people will do. But if you give them no authority, if you give them no reason to be invested in their disaster plan, then they have no reason to help you. <laughs> so but when you invest them, um, that's how you really get the best out of everybody, whether they're six or 60. God, I love that. That's a great story. Jamie? Yeah, and I and I think about that, Joe. You know, it's one of those things that that I always think about when I've when I've seen any kind of emergency situations is the interesting people that step up. And when you get to a you know a place where the the house was on fire and you know the neighbor came to help out of the blue that nobody ever expected, um, or you know in disaster situations that you probably have run into where you know the unlikely hero emerges from a situation. Well, absolutely. You know, I think uh, a lot of the sort of intangible stuff that um, one of my team's presence uh, helps to do is to provide a structure for the local folks to move from uh, impacted uh, survivors, quote unquote, to active responders and they just need a structure to communicate with each other and know that it's okay and a little direction and that sort of stuff and and they'll go to work absolutely so as we wind down patrick let's talk a little bit about uh, after the disaster getting your life back to normal and and all of us as disaster responders know what it's like to come back from a big disaster and have to go through that period of adjustment um how do you what do you tell them in terms of how do you get your life back together? I tell them, I don't want your life to get, get back together. I don't want you to recover. And I don't want to hear that you're a survivor. I want to hear that you are a success, that you actually took the disaster and you reversed it. Because that's what I talk about in the final part of my book, which I say, once we get your core uh, critical elements of your life back into place, things like, food and sheltering, and I lay it all out. I talk about people um, ensuring that they have the spiritual support, they have financial support, they have all the logistics that they need for themselves, their pets, their kids, etc. Once that's done, then I say, let's look at the disaster and say, not how am I going to survive this? 
It's how am I going to make me stronger? How am I going to get stronger as a result? I tell people, when you go through a big disaster, you know, when you're like, for example, I, I, I love to, to bench press, so I do that. So I say, you know, when I bench press, you know, when I do, you know, a small amount of weight, that's fine. It gets me warmed up and all that. But I never am going to grow unless I put a little more weight on there. So I push myself just enough. Because when I do that, then I find I get stronger and stronger. And that's what's going to make you stronger. These disasters will make you stronger if you let them. But you've got to design the disaster in a way that ensures that you are going to be stronger. Because I can't bench press 800 pounds. I'm not going to do that. That's never going to happen. And that's okay. But the amount that I can handle, I've planned for that in advance. When you are planning for the disaster, I want them to plan for success so that afterwards, what happens is that they get better mentally, physically, more resilient, spiritually, financially. I want them to look at everything that happened in the disaster and say, this didn't work. That's okay. It'll be better for next time. And that's what I do when I talk with families is I say, we look at, we are always looking at the sadness of it. Why do that? Look at the flip side of it, too, because I want you to see that the disaster is really an opportunity because out of those, out of what happened, you will find you will be more resilient. But the way to do that is that you have to look at the disaster as an opportunity to be stronger and see it as a challenge, not as a setback. Ah, very nice. So, Joe, any final thoughts or questions for Patrick? Uh, I think he summed it up beautifully, right? It is very much about your perspective, and uh, uh, every disaster is an opportunity. Amen. Well, that's the name of his book, too, Design Any Disaster, which is kind of a unique concept. What do you think, Jamie? It absolutely is, and I love the way you know that came around at the end there. The way Patrick described that as uh, you know the disasters do present those opportunities for growth and 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 change and making ourselves better, um, because that's one of the things, Joe. You guys at Paragon Medical Education Group do such a good job of bringing the the experience from disasters that you encounter with your team. Um, to the training table to help the next group of responders be better prepared for the next disaster. And it's, it's really, I think, you know, an underlying principle of what you do. Uh, no question about it, Jamie. And, and a lot of what we heard about tonight is, you know, stuff we try to incorporate it in, uh, into our training. Where can folks find out more about what Paragon does and the information that you work um, so hard to get out there about um, customization and ability to work within people's budgets, things like that? Sure. So we love to talk to folks so that we can design an educational program that suits their needs in uh, every aspect. They can find us at uh, Paragon Medical Education Group on the web or uh, Paragon Medical Group on Facebook, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast. And thank you again, as always, for your continued support and sponsorship of the Disaster Podcast, Joe. We really appreciate it. Um, Patrick, where can folks find the book, Design Any Disaster, The Revolutionary Blueprint to Master Your Next Crisis or Emergency? You can find it at Barnes & Noble. You can find it at Walmart. And, of course, you can find it on Amazon. So it will be the book goes goes live right now. 
now for pre-order. All right, so it goes on live on March 7th. Is that what you said? You dropped out here on my end just for a second. Yes, it does. It does. It actually goes, it, the book actually drops on March 7th, but it is but it is online now if people want to pre-order it at this time. Fantastic. And what if they want to reach out with you directly? Where can they, um, is there a way they can catch up with you as an author? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I have a I have a, a branding going on right now, but they can find me at americasdisasterplanner.com. So I, uh, I'll have everything up there, including information about, about my book. I'm a keynoter, and, um, and anything that I can do to support you or your, your listeners, I am, I'm happy to do that. So tell them to feel free to reach out to me anytime. Fantastic. Sam, did you have something you wanted to add? Oh, not really. Oh, okay. That's good. Sam, where can folks find you? You can find me in all the uh, social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. No, what I was going to say, Jamie, was you, you two both have a copy coming to your door. Uh, that's been arranged. So Very nice. You'll have that to show people. You'll also find me in the Disaster Podcast group in Facebook and Patrick um, that would be a good thing for you to do is maybe join us up there in case some people have some questions about the book or what you're talking about. Uh, we can tell you about that in a bit. And of course, disasterpodcast.com. Jamie? Yeah, and you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations. So please check me out there. And um, we will have links to Patrick's book and um, all the other information we talked about in this episode over at disasterpodcast.com. And of course, we'll link to this episode over in our Facebook group as well. Just uh, check out Disaster Podcast when you search on Facebook. We're the only one there, as far as I can tell. So it shouldn't be too hard to find us. Um, Sam, great episode. I'm so glad we got Patrick on the show tonight. Me too. This couldn't be more perfect. And I'm, I'm, and I love that other people are out there trying to get people prepared for disaster on any number of levels. So, Patrick, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. But, you know, we talk preparedness all the time. We talk education all the time. So this is just another way of looking at it. 